0: Well, friends, do please turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We're going to continue our study of the life and ministry and work of our Lord Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 1, verses 35 to 39. I'm going to read aloud, verses 35 35 to 39, and I would ask you to please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Once I have read it, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, and we'll respond together in unison. Thanks be to God. Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 39. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he, that is the Lord Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Young people who are sitting up here towards the front of the auditorium, one of the significant things that happens to you when you transition into uh, the further and further reaches of adulthood is you have to start making decisions about priorities. When you are very small, and many of you will remember this, you just have to do as you're told. The priority is the instructions that you are given. But part of the responsibility of being an adult is there are many responsibilities and sometimes they are vying for the same attention and energy and you don't have quite as much to go around as you think you might need. So you've got to make decisions about what's the priority, what's the most important thing at the moment. You know, things that are important and things that are urgent. John Carroll and Russell Knuff and I were talking about this earlier this week. And and sometimes the urgent things are not the important things, and sometimes the important things are not the urgent things, and you've got to be making value judgments. What am I going to give my time and attention to? Uh, As I've served now almost for 10 years as a pastor, uh, one of the constant struggles that I have is making decisions about priorities. How am I going to spend my time today? this brother who I've not seen at church for a few Sundays, do I call him right now or do I call the brother who's in the middle of of a marriage crisis? Do I call the, the sister who seemed depressed on Sunday or do I work on the sermon or do I call none of these people and pray for them instead? Priorities, making decisions about them. And some of you all, I mean, this is what your life is all about. Some of you are at home during the day and you're trying to decide is it the pot boiling over, or is it the blowout diaper, or is it the one who just fell down the stairs? Who gets my attention first? Right. Matters of priorities. And sometimes those priorities are literally screaming at you, trying to get your attention and put themselves first. Right. A kind of, to put it, I guess, and the doctors here will have to correct me if I'm wrong, sort of a, a priority triage is always going on, figuring out what's first and what needs to get dealt with first. Well, as in all things, for us as Christians, the Scriptures teach us. Our Lord God has not left us to our own devices in deciding about the most important things in our lives. Now, The Scriptures don't teach us about whether it's the kid who fell down the stairs or the kid with a blowout diaper who gets addressed first. But in matters of spiritual significance and the big things, the Scriptures do tell us what our priorities are to be. And we see that in the passage this morning that we're going to be considering together for the next few minutes. The Lord Jesus demonstrates his priorities, and in doing so, he teaches us about what ours ought to be. The passage that I just read to you, it it is the morning after this very eventful Sabbath day that we've been studying for the last two weeks where the Lord Jesus starts to preach in the synagogue, the people are astounded. He even casts a demon out of somebody in the midst of his preaching, and people are blown away. And then he goes to Simon Peter's house, raises his mother-in-law up out of a fever, and then the whole community comes to Peter's house that evening. And the Lord Jesus heals a great many of them, and they go home utterly transformed. As I said last week, he probably, given the number of people and the kind of work that he was doing, he probably was doing that work late into the night healing people. And the account this morning picks up the very next morning, and as the Scriptures say, very early in the morning. Now, this morning after this eventful Sabbath, Jesus behaves in a somewhat unexpected fashion. He rises very early in the morning to go and isolate himself and spend some time in prayer, which is normally what we do before a big day, not after one, right? And then he leaves these searching crowds, all these people looking for him, wanting to give their attention to him, wanting his attention. He leaves them behind to go preach in other places. Now, this is surprising behavior from our Lord. This is not maybe how we would have written this gospel if we were making it up. It is not made up, by the way. It's an eyewitness account, probably from Peter given to Mark and recorded here. And so you find Jesus acting in unexpected ways a lot because he actually was doing these things. And in these, this surprising behavior, we learn something about the priorities of our Lord, and by association, we learn what should be the priorities of his servants us. To put it another way, a a careful consideration of the priorities of the Lord Jesus in this passage will instruct us in how we are to order our priorities as his servants and as his church. We're going to look at Christ's behavior here. We're going to try to learn from it. And then, friends, as time allows, we're going to examine ourselves in light of what the Scriptures tell us. The two priorities that we see here in the text are that of prayer and the Word of God. The Lord Jesus makes a priority of prayer, and He makes a priority of the Word. So first, our Lord made a priority of prayer, and as His servants, we must make a priority of prayer also. Verse 35, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, He departed and went out to a desolate place, and there He prayed. I mean, Can you imagine the Lord Jesus there, his cell phone by his bedside, waking him up early in the morning? He did not have a cell phone waking him up. And yet he gets up early in the morning. There may have been a rooster or two in the community there that helped him, but he gets up while it's still dark. He goes out and finds a place to pray. Now, how does he pray? The scriptures don't tell us exactly how he prays. They don't say the words that he said. We can imagine that in, in some part he prayed as we do. The same common themes in our prayer, adoration and praise to God, thanksgiving to God, supplication to God, petitions asking him. I mean, I think we have confidence that Christ prayed that way because that's how he taught his disciples to pray, wasn't it? In the Lord's Prayer, as our, our brother's been taking, it, taking us through on Sundays here recently, One of the ways in which we often pray and should pray, and we just prayed a few minutes ago here that he did not pray, is the confession of sin. Because, of course, the Lord Jesus was without sin. He humbles himself before God his Father, but he does not need to confess any sin because he himself is God and without sin. Which brings up another question, though. If he himself is God and without sin, why is he praying? I mean, he is the one to whom we pray, right? Why does he get up early in the morning and go out and pray? He doesn't do it uh, specifically, simply to be an example to his disciples because he goes and hides, right? There's something personal going on there. He has a reason for praying. He has all authority, as we saw in the previous passage, to cast out demons, to heal those who are sick. He has power. And yet he goes and he prays. Well, he goes and he prays because though he is God, he has humbled himself at this point in the incarnation, and he has become a real human man. I've made this point before, and I'll continue to make it. We'll see it many times in the Gospel of Mark. Christ became a real human being. He did not look like one for a little while. He did not masquerade as a human being, but he really united himself to a real human life and took on humanity in its fullness like us, only without sin. And human beings, as we pointed out last week, uh, are, are weak and dependent creatures. Interestingly enough, even the sinless ones the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was without sin, yet because he was a man, he was dependent upon the Father. Human beings are created things, creatures dependent upon our, creature, our, our, upon our cre- creator. Excuse me. And even without sin, we are dependent upon our God. We need more than just the forgiveness of sin from him. We need everything from him, don't we? I mean, the Son and the moon and the stars are provisioned from God for us. We did not give them to ourselves. The world around us, the air that we breathe, in fact, not just the world, but our very lives, our life, our health, our strength, these are gifts given to us, and we are dependent upon their continuing. Some of us are noticing as the years go by that, life and health and strength suddenly fade out of nowhere and they feel like commodities that are in shorter supply you know when when i was old enough to be when i was young enough to be sitting on the front pew up here i didn't feel like strength and life there was no end to it i always had more energy well i i find myself needing naps a lot more often now and needing to be careful how much water i drink and and maybe having more salads right? So that my life is sustained because this life is not something I generate in myself. It is a gift from God. It is something that he gives. And as Job reminded us, he takes away not just our physical lives, though, we're dependent upon our Lord, everything, our patience, Our mercy, our self-control, friends, our, our ability to parent our children, the health and our relationships, even our ability to worship God is in some ways a gift from God. All of it is dependent upon Him. Every facet of our lives as creatures is dependent upon the mercy of our Creator. Which means, of course we should pray. Of course we should speak to Him. Of course we should call on him. Of course we should humble ourselves before him and ask him. I mean, we deceive ourselves about this, don't we? We imagine ourselves to be self-sufficient. We imagine that we don't need anything. And oftentimes Christians, I mean, those of us in the church, those committed to the church, we do the same thing. We imagine that we don't really need anything, and prayer becomes nothing but an obligation. I'm supposed to do it, and so I will. But at the end of the day, I have great confidence in my own abilities. That's why I pray so little, and I pray in such an obligatory fashion. We think so highly of ourselves and so little of our dependence upon God. Well, we see in the Lord Jesus a very different example. He was not deceived about who he was in the flesh, though he himself was in the form of God. He had willingly humbled himself to take on the form of a servant, even to to go to the cross, as we'll see in the chapters to come here. He humbled himself, and here he walks in real dependence. This prayer that he, he offers in the morning is anything but obligatory. He rises very early, as the Scriptures say, before the sun, and he goes to a desolate place the text says, a secluded place. This is the same phrase that's used in chapter one uh, when the the Holy Spirit drives the Lord out to be tempted in the wilderness. He goes out into the wilderness to find a secluded place to pray. I mean, he takes his own advice from Matthew chapter five and the, the verses following what our brother read a few minutes ago when he tells them, when you pray, go into your closet, go find a place where you won't be interrupted. That's what the Lord does. You're to imagine him rising early in the morning here at Peter's house. There are probably a lot of people around, tiptoeing out the door, out through the empty streets of Capernaum to find a place isolated in the, the wilderness area surrounding the community there where he might pray and not be disturbed. And given the success from his previous night, not being disturbed was going to be difficult to do. He was suddenly a celebrity in Capernaum. And surely the Lord Jesus knew what was coming. But he knew that he needed to pray. So he goes out to find a place to pray. Now, by the way, as I mentioned earlier, isn't that the last time that we find ourselves praying after a great success? I mean, we pray when we feel needy more often. We pray when we are in trial. That's when we feel the need to pray. But after great success, when we're feeling strong, I mean, prayer is often the very last thing on our minds. I discovered a few years ago uh, that the the Puritans would often spend twice as much time praying after they had preached as before. And at first, I, I didn't understand why. But... They explained it. Before they preached, they were asking God to help them in the act of preaching. But after they had preached, there was nothing more that they could do. The Lord needed to make that seed bear fruit. So they cast themselves doubly upon his mercy and asked him to make the seed bear fruit. That was a rebuke to me. I used to not pray at all after I had preached because all I cared about was whether I was going to get through it or not. And what happened afterwards, well, that was up to the Lord, right? But you see the point. True faith prays afterwards. And here the Lord Jesus, after this night of great success, he goes and he prays. This is the first thing for him to do that morning. If there was ever a morning I was going to make an excuse to not get up and pray, it would be after a late night of very successful ministry. When I could sleep in in the morning and rest in my success. But the Lord Jesus gets up before the sun. He is not deceived about his need. He's not deceived about his dependence upon the Father. He who has authority over the very demons, he was truly a human being and thus dependent upon his God, and so he prayed. In fact, he went to great lengths to make prayer his first priority of the day. Now, friends, human beings here in the room, fellow created things who are likewise dependent upon the Father. Dependent upon God for our very breath. Do we pray? In one sense, to be a Christian is to pray. This is what we find in Acts chapter 9 when the apostle Paul is struck blind and falls off his horse, and the Lord sends the man who is rightly afraid of Paul, and the Lord encourages him. No, no, he's really converted. Behold, he's praying. Prayer is, in one sense, the most plain and clear expression of our faith. It is essential fellowship with the Lord, where we simply speak to Him. We are not trying to live out an example. We are not receiving a transmission from far away. There There is no intermediary, but we turn our attention and faith to Him who is really there and speak to Him as though He is there. Because he is. And yet, friends, I mean, to be honest, isn't prayer often neglected in our lives? Neglected sometimes for days at a time. Yes, there may be some prayer, uh, a bit of it here and there in our lives. Two minutes in the car here, 30 seconds there while we're waiting for the Wi-Fi to reconnect or something like that. But do we really take his counsel when you pray, go find a secret place, go into your closet and shut the door and speak to your father who's in secret? Do we even bother to do that? Do we pray according to his counsel in in the gospel of Luke when he tells the parable of the persistent widow? Likewise, pray to your father, go again and again and again, beat on his door. He will not tarry long over his elect when they ask for the Holy Spirit. Friends, do we follow the example of our Lord Jesus? Here in this text. I mean, think, this is not, you're not going to report this, but just think in your head when was the last time you got up before the sun to pray? When was the last time you sought out a place where you knew you would not be interrupted in order to pray? I confess to you, Far too often an interruption to prayer is a welcome interruption because it means I don't have to pray anymore. Someone needs me. I can go do something, right? Do we follow the Lord Jesus' example here? I mean, some of us have experienced those Gethsemane nights where we're before a great trial and we are driven to pray. But have we experienced many Capernaum mornings? where we rise early and seek the Lord's face. It's hard to do so. Now, I confess to you, it is very hard. The Lord Jesus didn't do it because it, he, it was easy to do. He did it because it was important. That's the point that I'm trying to make. And if it was important for him, oh, friends, how much more important is it for us? How much more important is it for us to spend time with our Father in prayer than to make sure that we go to the gym, than to watch the next episode of that television show that we're finding so thrilling, more important than finding out what's happening in the news and, and getting our dopamine hit from whatever weird thing our leaders are doing right now, whatever craziness is going on on social media. How much more important is it that we spend time with our Lord than be browsing on the internet or, or be reading that novel that we love or playing those video games or even tending in our garden? How important is it that we speak to the God who is there and turn our attention to him? It is important. A few years ago, my father had a major heart attack, and uh, he started doing something afterwards Uh, that he had never really done much before, exercise regularly. He and a small group of men about his age are at the hospital doing cardiac rehab several days a week, and they do it religiously. They never miss cardiac rehab. There's my dad and a bunch of guys his age on treadmills, you know, early in the morning, week after week after week. Now, why do they do that? No, they do it because they know it's important. A major heart attack taught him that it was important. He knows now how significant it is. And so he goes and he does it. Friends, do we believe that prayer is important? The Lord Jesus knew that it was. You see it in his choices here. You see it in his priorities. It was important to him. He knew that he was not self-sufficient but he needed to seek his Father's face. Are we more self-sufficient than him? We are not. Corporately, collectively also, friends, are we self-sufficient as a church? Do we have all the wisdom and all the means to navigate every trial? We do not. As a church, together, corporately, we are to be a house of prayer, That is the model of the early church, a praying people. As individuals living dependent lives upon our Lord, so we should be living corporately dependent lives upon our Lord. We should be a people whose lives are marked by prayer, in some ways defined by coming together to pray. I thank God that we have prayer meetings here as a church, several prayer meetings, and prayer meetings that are relatively well-attended. By the standards of the day. Now, frankly, the standards of the day are very, very low. I think the reality is there will be a lot more folks at the picnic on Saturday than at the prayer meeting tomorrow night. There will be a lot more folks coming out in the evening for the talent show in a few months than there will be for the prayer meeting. That is not, I'm not trying to shame you by pointing that out. I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm, I'm trying to make us examine our priorities and examine what we think is important. This is about self-examination, not about getting bullied from the pulpit. You see what I'm saying? What do we really think is important? Honestly. I've wondered about this lately do you think it would be easier to raise $1 million or to get every single person in this room to a prayer meeting the same night? I mean, I've wondered about that. Do you think it'd be easier to raise a $1 million? Do you think we could get that done first? In some ways, I think it would be easier because we knew that if we raised $1 million for something, that something would happen. If we were were going to build a gym or something like that, or if we wanted to be one of those churches that has like a food court, and we decided that we wanted wanted to really do it right, we wanted a million dollars, you know, if we raised a million dollars, we could get that food court. We know it would happen. We do not believe that if we all went to the prayer meeting, something would happen. You see my point? That's part of the issue here. We know that a million dollars will accomplish something. We're not so sure about prayer. When Pastor Tim resigned here a few months ago, there were 70 people at the prayer meeting that evening. There were so many people that we could not meet in the library. We had to come over in this room, remember? Now, why? Well, we felt needy that night. We felt desperate. We needed to pray. We didn't know what was going on. Now, Grace Church, are we less needy today than we were that night? Are we less dependent upon the grace of God today than we were that night? We are not. We are every bit as needy and dependent. We just don't feel it quite as much because the circumstances are different. It's easy to walk by sight and not by faith. On the final day, when we see the Lord Jesus, we will know how much we have depended upon his mercy. We will see then how hour by hour, day by day, we have been sustained by him, even when we could not be bothered to ask. And I wonder, friends, if we will not be rebuked implicitly when we see his mercy and his kindness and we realize, oh, how he would have blessed us if we had only bothered to ask. And isn't that what the scriptures say? You have not because you ask not. When we see him in his glory, when we see his face, and we know him even as we are known. Will we not realize then, oh, oh, he would have poured out the spirit on us if we had bothered to ask. But we did not really ask. Only in little bits, fits and starts here and there. But we did not give ourselves to the work of asking. On that day, we'll realize, well, I've said this to you all many times before. The prayer meeting is something, something of like Cinderella. You know, she looks, she looks like not much, but on the final day, it turns out she's the queen. It turns out that she was the one all along laboring faithfully in our midst. The Lord Jesus obviously saw the importance of prayer. Friends, let's open our eyes and see the importance of prayer. Let's recognize who Cinderella is now, before that final day when everything is changed and she is exalted. Recognize. The necessity of prayer in our homes, and our own lives, and together as a church. Our Lord recognized that truth and he prayed. And he made it his priority. Will we? Now the second point, and I'll be very brief about this. The second point I want to make to you about the Lord Jesus' priorities from this text is that he made a priority of the word of God. And as his servants, we must make a priority of the word also. We see this illustrated in the passage. As he was praying, his disciples came out to him. They were hunting for him. That's that word, they're they're looking for him. What does it say? They they searched for him. Now that word that Mark used, searched, is not really, they were were seeking him out, like hunters looking for prey. Mark uses this word a number of times in in this gospel, and it's almost always in a negative context. The Pharisees are searching for him, right? they're looking for Jesus. And you can see why. Of course they are. I mean, imagine them waking up early in the morning after this great night before to find that he's not there. And evidently, the crowd is looking for him too. They're at Peter's house. Surely, that night before would have seemed like a great success to those disciples. I mean, he's preaching the kingdom, after all, and himself the king. And here is this massive crowd of of willing, apparent subjects there. The whole city, the whole community has come out. It would have seemed monumental to them. And yet, where is he? Where is the king? Well, he's out in the woods, praying. They find him, and they give him what I think we're right to understand as a gentle rebuke. What are you doing out here? They say to him, everybody is looking for you. Like he's caught. There's a crowd of people searching for you. It is a foretaste of what's to come a few chapters later when Peter confesses he's the Christ and then tells him not to go to Jerusalem, not to go to the cross. And Jesus says, get behind me. Your your mind is on the things of man, not the things of God. It is the same here. But when they they give him this gentle rebuke and say, you know, the, the people are looking for you. What are you doing out here? He replies to them shockingly in the negative, no. I'm not going back to see that crowd. I'm not going back to the crowd that's waiting for me. We're moving on to another town so I can preach this good news to other folks so that more people can hear this gospel. And then he makes this statement, that's why I've come out. That is what I'm here for. You can imagine their surprise when Jesus responds that way. I mean, some of the the disciples had political ambitions. And, And Jesus says to them, in effect, no, I'm not going to go act as a king. I've got a message to preach. I'm going to go act as a herald. That's the most important thing. That's why I'm here. Now, why? Why does he do that? Well, first, there are two reasons I want to give you. First, Jesus knows what the crowd is really after. This becomes more apparent as the Gospels go on. But what they're really after is signs and wonders. It's marvelous what he's done. They want to see more of it. And that is not really the kingdom of God, being impressed by the power. It's just an appearance. The crowds come and go. In John chapter 6, massive crowds are fed. And then he says, you've got to trust in me. You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they say, whoa, that's a hard teaching. And there's hardly any of them left. Now, second, Jesus knew that the real lasting kingdom of God that he had come to bring does not come through amazing impressive signs and human comfort it comes through the word heard and believed there's a foundational spiritual principle all throughout the bibles the bible that god does his work through his word a creation He does it through his word. He sustains all things by the word of his power. He calls Abraham and makes a covenant people by his word, his promise. He sets Israel apart as a nation and turns that family into a people by his word given to them. Life is given to them through the word, the promise. And when Christ the Redeemer comes, he is rightly called the word made flesh. In John chapter 1, life has come to be accomplished on the cross. Jesus Christ, the word, comes and dwells among people in order that he might take the burden of their sins on his shoulders and go to the cross and die that sinners might be forgiven. The only savior of sinners. Life in the flesh. And that was the life that he came to give them. More than just new lives through physical healing like we see in these chapters, As marvelous as that was, it was temporary, it was merely physical, but Christ had come to give them life in their souls. He'd come to give them new life eternally through reconciliation with God. And reconciliation with God came not through marveling at his power or enjoying the comforts, but it came through hearing the gospel truth and believing it. It came through hearing the word he was preaching, that word of repentance and forgiveness In Christ alone and believing it, that's how the kingdom came. And so, to their great surprise, the Lord Jesus did not linger to rule there in Capernaum, but he moved on to preach that word that gives life. That was his priority. And so, friends, I want to ask this question here, and we'll be brief. Is that our priority? Nothing has changed, really. It is still through the Word that God exercises His power and gives spiritual life. Initially, in saving of souls, I mean, Romans chapter 10, it is is through the Word, heard and believed. And progressively, when we are sanctified, it is by the truth, John chapter 17, sanctify us by the truth, your Word is truth. Is His Word our priority personally? Do we read his word? Do we study his word? Do we give attention to the preaching of his word? Do we seek guidance in his word? Do we take direction from his word? We can often think of ourselves, I think, as as being a lot better about this than the emphasis on prayer. But are we, though? If we really examine ourselves, I mean, are we a people who are defined by searching the scriptures? Even in our need, I think far too often we trust in our own wisdom rather than what he has said. Brothers and sisters, if you aren't reading your Bibles regularly, daily, start reading your Bibles. It doesn't get more complicated. If you need help in doing so, ask. Call me. Call me this week. I'm not preaching next Sunday morning. I have lots and lots of time. Call me and say, I, need, I know I need to start reading the Bible, but I don't really know where to begin. I don't know how to do this. I've tried so many times and I failed. Help me. Oh, how I would love to help you with that. This is the priority of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, His Word. It is to be our priority as well. We are to read as if our lives depend upon it, because in a spiritual sense, much of our vitality and life does depend upon it. And to do whatever it takes to make it our priority, it is not easy but it is important. Christ knew that it was important, and he made it his priority. Now, the very last thing I want to say is this. Is the Word of God our priority as a church? We see it in Christ's life. It is to be our priority, every one of us individually, but is it our priority corporately as a church? That the Word of God be preached and read and studied and known and obeyed. Is that what we are about? Do we act like that's what really matters? Or do we secretly think what really matters is a budget and bodies in the pews and things running smoothly? You can have that without the Word, you know. My kids go to daycare right now. My two youngest children go to daycare, and they go to a daycare at a large church that's not far from our house. And this is a very liberal church, and I had not been there before, but I go for daycare. And man, they have a beautiful building. That place is massive. And it's not massive and old and run down. I mean, it's massive and well kept up. I mean, there's stainless steel and stained glass and stone everywhere. I mean, it's really nice. There's a ton of people that go to that church, and they obviously have a lot of money. Right? They do not preach the Bible there, do not encourage people to take it as the Word of God. Now, that wasn't always the case at that church. Little by little, slowly over the years, they abandoned their trust in the Word of God. It didn't happen overnight, but it did happen And the people let it happen because they were not caring as much about the word being taught as they were about the building and the attendance and the budget and their comfort. And they're satisfied with what they have. And it is not the spiritual power of God's word known among his people. The legacy of Grace Church is a high view of the word of God, but friends, we can drift. Nobody's above drifting. We've got to guard that carefully as a priority. Many other concerns are going to present themselves. Social concerns, moral concerns, financial, political, emotional concerns among people, lots of concerns are going to present themselves to be our priority. The world is going to tell us that our priorities should be other things other than the Word of God. Some even in the church will tell us that. And you know, one of, the, one of the first pieces of advice that you'll receive right now in the church growth movement is to take a poll of the community around the church and ask people, what do you think our priorities should be? And we will then shape the life of our church around public opinion. I mean, you may have even heard of that happening. That happens all the time. Well, Christ had the poll coming to him. The The pollsters came out and found him in the woods. They're looking for you. What are you doing out here? I'm doing what I've come out to do. I'm going to preach the word of God. I know what they want, but I also know what they need. And I believe that the word of God is the priority, and so he goes. Friends, we have got to make sure that we do not lose the priority of the word of God in our midst here. We've got to make sure that the preaching of the word, that that the teaching of the word in Sunday school and Bible studies and in the evenings, it does not become just an obligatory thing that's part of our tradition, but what we really care about is the social events. We've got to be careful about that. The word is the life of the church. And friends, I do encourage you, and we'll get down really to the brass tacks here. Whoever it is that is going to be standing in this pulpit for years to come, whether it's me or whether it's somebody else, make sure that they understand that priority. You see? Make absolutely sure that the elders who are sitting together in a session understand that priority, that they reflect the priorities of the Lord Jesus here, that we as a people do all together. It's not for nothing that the apostles tell them in Acts Get some deacons to deal with the situation with the widows, because we must devote ourselves to what? To prayer and the ministry of the Word. The same priorities that were seen in the life of Christ were recognized by the early church and are carried on through the centuries, and they've got to be carried on here as well. They've got to be carried on. There are, I think, dark days ahead of us, culturally speaking, And the priorities of the church will be threatened, and not just by the world, but by the devil and by our very flesh. We have got to recognize that what Christ identified as the most important things, prayer and his word, that they remain the most important things. If Grace Church is going to live, boy, we could get people in here other ways. We could improve the budget other ways. We could even add on to this building and renovate everything and man, it would be sparkly. But we cannot enjoy real spiritual life. The kingdom of God in our midst apart from prayer and the word of God. Brothers and sisters, we want to be a Christ-centered church and a Christ-centered church is a praying church that loves the Bible. So let's thank him for it and recommit ourselves and go on recommitting ourselves to follow in the steps of our Lord. Let's pray together now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word here. We were not there that day when the Lord Jesus went out to the desolate place to pray. Thank you for telling us that he did. Thank you for teaching us about what he did that morning. Thank you for teaching us about his preaching in Galilee. Thank you for showing us what really matters. Oh, Father, work the truth into our hearts. May we be those that live for what really matters. Have mercy on us. Thank you for loving us enough to teach us these things and tell us these things. Oh, God, teach us to walk with you. Thank you for your steadfast love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.